Good morning. Welcome to Christian Fellowship. Welcome to 1030. We made it. It happened. We got here. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being here on time. Very much appreciate that. Um, Amen. Uh, As we get started, I'd like to thank um, our hospitality team. Our hospitality team uh, gets here this morning. They got here even earlier than usual uh, to make the place look clean, to um, be there to greet you at the door, to answer questions, to um, help get you in that mindset of when you're here, you're part of a community and you're welcomed in. I I know many of you, um, especially if, if you're relatively new, I know a lot of you are here because you came and the first time you came in the doors, somebody greeted you. Somebody cared that you were here. Somebody was invested in you being here. And that's our hospitality team. So thank you for everybody who serves on the hospitality team, Amy and her team are the best. Thank you very much. If, that's, uh, if that team interests you in, in getting and helping clean up, yeah, we can clap. That's okay. Yeah, that's good. Don't be shy. Um, if that team interests you in getting involved that way and, and helping out, talk to Amy. You can circle it on the Connect cards, um, and we can get you plugged in there as well. So uh, this morning, we're going to be in 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, open up to 1 John. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back around you. And uh, if you are using that Bible, it should be on page 1021, and then we're going to go to uh, chapter 5. So you'll actually flip over a few pages. Um, but we're going to be in 1 John chapter 5 today. So we are beginning chapter 5 of this letter, and you don't have to be a biblical scholar to see, once you turn there, that chapter 5 is the last chapter of 1 John. So we are making the turn and, and coming down the home stretch of John. We've been in this letter throughout all of 2017, basically, um, and so we're almost done with it. Um, and so this is his final chapter. This is the kind of the closing thoughts of John as he has written this letter. Um, and as he closes out this letter, he takes the different ideas, the different concepts that we have uh, been looking at, the things he's been instructing the Christians about, and shows us how they are all intertwined, how they all work together. And so what we're going to see this morning is basically John taking all of these different points he has been making and showing us how they interact. It's basically his version of an elevator pitch. You guys know what an elevator pitch is? It's that idea that if you have something, you're, you know, if you're trying to sell, uh, you know, you had an idea for a TV show, and in the happenstance you walked into an elevator with a TV producer, you could give them your pitch for your TV show in the time it took to ride the elevator, and then they would buy your TV show and you would make millions. Um, and so that's basically what John is doing here. He's doing a, a confined version of all the things he's been talking about throughout this letter. He's going to combine together in these five verses. It's his elevator pitch on how to be a Christian, how to know that you are a Christian, how to be assured of that, and what, what that does for us going forward. So throughout this series, if you've been here for any amount of time, you know we've been asking a lot of questions in this letter. Questions like, how do you know if you are a Christian? What do we believe? What's the difference between walking in the light and walking in darkness? What does love actually look like? How many times can John use the word abide in one letter? We've asked a lot of different questions throughout this series. And as we've asked these questions, John has regularly shown us signs and guiding points to look at in our own lives for assurance. Because he was writing at a time when false teachers were creeping up. He's writing at a time, remember, about 70 or 80 years after Jesus. And so false teachers are rising up. People are perverting the gospel, teaching false doctrines. And so he's trying to help ground us, assure us of our faith. And so he's been giving us these signs and these pointers. 
And they can basically be broken down. Everything John has done in these first four chapters can basically be broken down into three categories. Three categories of assurance. They are theological, social, and moral. All right, so before we get into today's text, what I want to do is I want to break down these three categories as a little bit of a refresher for all of us, um, and then we're going to see how they all interact in today's uh, passage. So the first one I want to talk about is theological assurance. It's something John has hit on multiple times, basically answering the question, what do you believe? Do you confess, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior? Do you believe that he came to live a perfect life, free of rebellion against God, free of the rebellion that marks our lives? He lived a perfect life, and he came and died on the cross, and in dying, paid the penalty for our sins and made it possible for our sins to be forgiven and for us to have a new identity as God's children. So John has continuously given us reminders and examples of this theological assurance of, if you believe this, you are right with God. And so there's going to be a list on the screen behind me, and this is pretty close to an extensive list, exhaustive list, um, throughout 1 John, the passages we've looked at, the verses we've looked at, that kind of pull out this idea of theological assurance, where John has said, if this is what you believe, if you believe that Jesus is who he said he is, that he died on the cross paying the penalty for your sins, then your salvation is assured. And so the one that sticks out to me the most in that list is chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John there says, if you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, you have an advocate for the, with the Father. You have one who is going on your behalf, defending you to the Father. You have one who is the propitiation. We looked at this word a couple of different times. We looked at it last week. It is appeasement, satisfy. He is the a satisfaction. He is the one who satisfies the demand on our lives from our sin. And he did that by dying on the cross. And so he says in, this, in these two verses, if you sin, when you sin, if you put your faith in Christ, you have someone going to God the Father on your behalf as your advocate arguing for you. The propitiation, the one who appeases that judgment of sin that sin demands, Christ takes that on himself. The first assurance, the big assurance that John has been hitting on throughout this letter is one answering the question, what do you believe? What do you confess as truth? Not just words that you share with someone, but what do you actually, as an individual, in your heart, what do you actually believe about who Jesus is? Because if you confess and believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, that he is the Son of God who came to earth to die on the cross, paying the penalty for your sins, you can be assured of your salvation. Your salvation is set. Your identity as God's child is set be encouraged and lean on that reality. No one can take that from you. That is yours. No matter what the world says, no matter what the world throws at you, that is yours. And so John has continuously reminded us of that. So the first assurance is theological. The second one is social. How do we act? How do we carry ourselves? What are we known by? Do you show love to others? 
We're not talking about romantic love, right? We're not talking about brotherly, friendly love. When John talks about love in this letter, he talks about what the Greek, the Greek word is agape love, unconditional love, unrelenting, self-sacrificing, servant-based love. This kind of love has to take action. It can't sit by. It has to take action. And so John has continuously given us reminders and challenges of how Christians are to love. And again, there's a list on the screen of all the different places in 1 John that show us this is what love looks like. This kind of love takes action. And that's clearly stated in chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, where he says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We can't just talk about love. We can't just theorize about what showing love to somebody else was going to look like. We have to be a people of actionable love because this kind of love that John is talking about, that Christians are called to do, this kind of love is an action. And what John has said throughout this letter is that when we show unconditional love, a love that we only know because we experienced it from God first. When we show this, that should assure us of our status as God's children. When you show that kind of self-sacrificing, unconditional love for others, that should be an assurance to you that you're doing something that, as we saw last week, is the exclusive right and responsibility of Christians. Only Christians understand what agape love is because we're the only ones who have experienced it from God. And so when we are showing that love to others, we are, in essence, saying, my relationship with God is set because I'm doing something that I couldn't do if I didn't have a relationship with God. And so John has continuously said, the way you love should be an assurance to you of your salvation. So that's the social assurance. So we have theological, social, and the third one is the moral assurance. Obedience to what Scripture tells us about right and wrong. Obedience to what the Holy Spirit speaks to us in different situations. We've talked about it many times throughout this series that you can use whatever words you want to describe your relationship with God. You can come in and put on the the fake face when you're around church people. You can say all the right things. You can know all the right verses. Raise your hands at the right time during worship. But if it's not real, if your actions don't line up with your words, then they are just that. They are words. Empty and useless. Again, the list is going to be on the screen. As far as this moral um, assurance goes, these are the different places where John has talked about that throughout this book, throughout this letter. And in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, he said, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. John says it pretty clearly and pretty harshly in pretty strict words throughout this letter. You can say whatever you want, but if your actions don't line up, you are a liar. And so this moral assurance, again, if our actions, if we are, the way that we obey and the way that we, we're going to see in a little bit as we get into this morning's verse, the way that we obey, the way that we respond to God's commandments to us throughout Scripture is an assurance to us because it comes from our love for God. It is an assurance to us of our salvation, our right relationship with God. So hopefully as we've gone through this, some of these topics, if you've been here throughout this series, some of these topics sound relatively familiar for you. And if you haven't been here or you were sleeping, um, then now you're caught up, okay? Um, And so all of that, 
was set up to get into today's text. See, you guys thought I got you here a half hour early just for fun. I have a half hour extra of sermon. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. Man, that should have been applause. I'm going to edit that out. Um, in today's passage, John is going to show us that these different assurances that we talked about, so the theological, moral, um, and social, these things, they aren't just silos. They aren't just individually placed, but they actually work together. They interact and they have connection with one another. So we're going to jump in. So um, I'm going I'm to pray, and then, uh, and then we're going to jump into the text. So will you please bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, and to, to worship you, to study your word, to, to be amongst your people. God, we worship you this morning because you are good, and you're good all the time, and because you ordered all things together, and you know all things. And so, God, in light of those facts, in light of who you are, Lord, we, we pray that you fill us with a trust in you, a reliance on you, that, Lord, as, as the world might attack us and distract us, Lord, that we never lose sight of your never-ending love that we have received through Jesus Christ, that we are always focused on you. And so, Lord, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be glorifying to you. And we pray all of these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. So we're going to look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So as I said, these different assurances show up a couple of different times throughout this passage. So in this first verse, we see a theological assurance and a social assurance uh, blended together. He starts, he says, believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is born of God. Believe and confess that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, God come in the flesh, fully God and fully man at the same time. That he is, anyone who believes that is born of God, John uses this phrase, has a new identity, is a child of God. A new identity with new desires and new longings. We're not perfect. Christians are not perfect. But with a desire to pursue knowing God deeper and deeper still that we have this new identity as his sons and daughters. And so we see this theological assurance that if you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you are God's child. You are born of him. You are his forever. And then he goes on and says, everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. If you love God, you love his children. And that love comes from your love of God. And we saw this last week in chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. He taught us how to love. Uh, I have a couple of friends. Their names are Zach and Kaylee. And uh, they are, I've known them 10, 11 years. They are some of our closest friends, um, confidants, uh, accountability, just people that I very much respect and care for. Um, love them dearly. And Zach and Kaylee have two kids. They have uh, a son and a daughter. They have uh, Ophelia and Oliver. Ophelia is three, and she's a little cartoon character that dances around and wears pretty dresses. And Oliver is six months, and he is a bucket of drool. Um, I love Ophelia and Oliver. Love them to the extreme. They are the best. They make me smile. They make me laugh. They're great. I love them, and I love them because I love their parents. 
I love Zach and Kaylee. They are close. They are like, you know, real close. They're those friends who become family kind of people. Love them. And so because of my love for their parents, I love their kids. That's what John is saying here. If you love God, then from and because of that love, you should love his children, other Christians. And so we see our theological assurance and our social assurance are connected because we believe and love God, and from that flows a love for fellow Christians. You see how these things interact? Yes? Head nods work. Okay, good. All right, so that's verse 1. So we see the, the social and the theological. Verse 2, let's check out verse 2 and see what John has to say. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. So here we see a social and a moral assurance. We know that we love others when we love and obey God's commandments. If we are pursuing a relationship with God and obeying his commandments, we cannot be in relationship with others that isn't founded and grounded in love. We can't, be, we can't have hate for our brothers and sisters while still trying to pursue a relationship with God. We said it last week in, chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 4. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. Because what are the two big commandments that we've been talking about throughout this series? What are the two big commandments that Jesus gives us? Love God, love people. So our love for God is put on display when we obey his commandments. So we have the moral assurance, obeying his commandments to love God, love people. And by doing that, by obeying, we are in fact loving people. And so there's the social assurance. So you see, again, these things are intertwined. They work together. When we obey God's commandments, we show love to others. So again, we see the social aspect and the moral aspect blended together. But John's not done there, right? Because so far we've seen the theological and the social and how they interact. We've seen the social and the moral, so what's left? We have the theological and the moral. And once you know it, we got verse 3. And so in verse 3, John says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. And so we see the moral assurance of keeping God's commandments. We see obeying God's commandments, keeping them. And in doing that, we reveal the love that we have for God. And where does our love for God come from? Where does our love from God come from? It comes from being born of him, having faith in him, having faith in Christ and being made a child of God. And so our love of God and our faith in God, our theological assurance, are revealed when we are obeying God's commands. That's the moral assurance. And yet John says here, when he talks about commands, and we hear obey, obey, and commands, that can get kind of scary, right? But John gives us this, this second half of this verse, and he says these commands aren't hard. They aren't taxing. His commandments are not burdensome. They are not heavy-handed restrictions and demands, but rather the commandments of God are not burdensome. God didn't give us his word. He didn't give us scripture. He didn't give us his commandments to make life more difficult for us, to make life harder. He did it to free us. He did it to give us life. He does it so that we can have the best possible life because he designed everything so he knows the best way to live this life. And that's what scripture gives us the blueprints on how to do things the best way possible. He knows the best way for this to work, and because he loves us, he reveals to us the best way to live. 
And he does that throughout his word, throughout scripture, and in his commandments. And not only does he show us the best way to live, but he gives us the Holy Spirit to guide us, to help us in discernment, to help us to pursue these commandments he has called us to. See, oftentimes, humans really are the ones who put the weighty restrictions, the weighty burdens on people when it comes to religion. We make it about works. We make it about you have to do this, you have to do that. We have to try and earn something. We have to try and win God's approval. The Pharisees were great at that. The Pharisees would take the Old Testament law, so they would take something that said, you know, don't eat meat, right? They weren't allowed to eat certain kinds of meat. And so the Pharisees would then take that to the extreme and say, we won't even touch it. And anyone who does touch it, touches it, is a sinner. That's not right. In an effort to try and impress God or keep themselves holy or make themselves better than everyone else, they ended up making it impossible for people to live under these expectations. Their commands and laws and rituals became a burden. Jesus said, love me, love my people. I'll show you and I will empower you on how to do this. There's no burden there. Jesus says, I'm going to show you what this looks like. And then I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to make it possible for you to do this. And so it's with these assurances in mind, the theological, the social, and the moral, these three things and how that they are interact and they are connected, that John gives us finally an encouragement. These assurances are just that. They are assurances. They are not the things that save us. They are the um, ramifications. They are the consequences. They are what comes after salvation. These are things that prove and remind us, yes, you are secure in your relationship with God. They are designed to be signs for us, to tell us, just like when you're driving on the Kennedy and you need to know which way to go, they show you signs on what exit to take. That's what these assurances are. They help us on the road to know which, if we're going the right direction. They are designed to be signs for us to tell us where to go. And by using these signs, we get to the destination, which John says here is victory. Look at verse 4 and 5 with me. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The Bible uses multiple words to describe Christians. John's favorite between these letters and the Gospel of John is the phrase, the one who overcomes. The one who overcomes. This word overcome, and actually this word victory there, they are uh, tied together. They have the same root. And you all actually know it. Some of you are probably wearing it. It's the word Nike. We pronounce it Nike. It's actually pronounced Nike. It means victory. Yeah, they were really smart in their branding. Victory. Overcome. That's what John says about Christians. You are the ones who overcome. You are the ones who claim victory. Everyone who has been born of God, everyone who is a Christian, overcomes the world, finds victory in the world. And so by world, we know, if we, as we've studied this letter, he's talking about rebellion. He's talking about sin and corruption and evil and the desires that go against what God has for us. And he says, you find victory amongst that. But how do we find this victory? He says, 
our faith. It is our faith that we become the ones who overcome. And he says rhetorically in verse 5, he kind of repeats himself, who, who can overcome except the one who believes in Jesus? And the implied answer there is no one. Only the one who believes, only the one who has put their faith in Christ can be one of these victorious, one of these overcomers. Only the one who puts their faith, their confidence in Christ can overcome. And it's not actually even us who are the ones who overcome anything. Jesus is the one who overcomes. He is the one who went to battle with Satan. He is the one who defeats Satan. And it is through his life and death and burial and resurrection that all things are being made new that we can find hope and forgiveness and new life. We can overcome, we can find victory, not because of who we are, not on our own, but who we are in Christ. And so the fact that we are born again, the fact that we are his children, that we are co-heirs with Christ, our identity being wrapped up in Christ's righteousness, not on our own, but in his, it's because of our relationship with him that we become those who can overcome. John said it this way in John 16, Jesus is talking. He said, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. He already did it. The work is done. The victory is ours. It's all complete already in Christ. Already in 1 John, he's talked about those who have overcome the evil one. We saw it in chapter 2. He said, he said then in chapter 2 that when we resist temptation, when we resist the devil, we are overcoming. And that's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit, whom we receive at the moment of salvation, which comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Your victory, your power, your identity, it's wrapped up in Christ that's been the assurance. That's been the thing John has driven home throughout this letter. Jesus, where do you stand with Jesus? What is your take on Jesus? What is your relationship with him? Because if your faith and confidence is in him, there is new identity. You are a son or daughter of God Almighty. There is victory to be had. I told you at the beginning of this that this was John's elevator pitch. This probably feels like the longest elevator ride of your life. So I want to try and summarize what we've been talking about this morning. I'm going to try and condense this sermon into just a few sentences. A Christian's faith in Jesus makes them a child of God. What we believe about who Jesus is, how we show love to fellow Christians, how we obey the commands of God, these things guide us and remind us we are born of God. And it is through the new birth we find the victory that Jesus has claimed for us. And if you're a millennial and you want that in Twitter speak, be assured of your faith by what you believe, how you love, and how you obey. Do not be swayed by this world because in Christ you have victory. Do not be swayed by this world because in Christ you have victory. Let's pray.